I'm Emma. I'm the Executive Minister here at Church Hill, and I'm going to be reading the scriptures this afternoon. Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 30, all the way through to the end. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, "'Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid.'" Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognised Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, They placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emma, for reading that so well. Um, And hi, everyone. Um, If I haven't met you, I'm Dave, and it's my privilege to speak today. Um, Today, we uh, are looking at Mark's Gospel again, and we've been doing that over the last several weeks. Um, as you'll know. Uh, Tom, of course, has been leading us through the series, Forging the Way, and last week it was Justin. Um, From the outset, Mark's Gospel has been telling us 
about who Jesus is, the King of the Kingdom, um, or from chapter 1, verse 1, the Messiah, the Son of God. And this question about Jesus' identity really does, is, is a theme of the first half of Mark's Gospel. And so as we go through it, we come again to ask the question about who Jesus is. And this week we see, as we've just heard read, um, these two episodes, two boat trips actually, also two of Jesus' most distinctive miracles, uh, feeding of the 5,000, um, Jesus walking on water. Actually, a couple of us noticed there's a stained glass window over there of Jesus walking in the water. Um, he says there, it is I, don't be afraid, which is works that come straight out of our passage today. So if I see you glance up or just stare up into the sky, I'll assume that you're reading the word of God and you're not just bored about what I'm saying. Um, that's great and that's encouraging, so please do that. Um, what we see today in these two miracles, I think, is that Jesus is the king of compassion. And their words are definitely worth listening to and taking to heart. Um, in fact, Christy, is she here? Christy's not here. She's, uh, she is here. She's just hiding. Um, Christy, in our, in, our connect, in our community group on Wednesday night, sort of summarised as we were looking at this passage, she said, as we're getting to know Jesus better, we're really understanding better ourselves how to become Jesus' disciples. And I thought, what a great summary. I sort of remembered that. And I thought, that's kind of what we're trying to do today, and I hope that's what we get out of it. So let me pray that that, in fact, is what we get out of it. Father in heaven, thank you um, for that your word is living and active, and we thank you for these words in front of us. We pray that as we read about Jesus and his disciples, that you would speak to us now, um, and we pray that your word would dwell in us and bear much fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, two points, really just following the, um, the two episodes. The first, Jesus' compassion on the crowds. And secondly, Jesus' compassion on his disciples, um, which is also his compassion upon us as we seek to follow him. First, Jesus' compassion on the crowds. We don't often get to see inside a person and what is going on inside their heart from the outside. Getting a glimpse of what is going on in the inside sometimes takes years. I've got a friend who I caught up with recently who I've known very well for a number of years but revealed something about him which told me a lot about his quirks and some of the weird things that he does things. I had just sort of put up with him and he's a great guy that I, I love. But I didn't understand until he told me something about him years after knowing him. Um, so things that you, the things that you want to know about someone's heart are sometimes not available but there are moments where you get to see it. And today, having seen Jesus on the outside with his words and his deeds a number of times, we get a rare glimpse into the inside of Jesus, his beating heart. Um, we see the compassion that he has on the crowds. Um, we've seen this in contrast, and Justin drew this to our attention last week, um, the, the, the heart of King Herod as he serves as the, the Roman king of the Jews in the, the region of Judea. A king who, if you just remember what he said, what he did last week, has a heart which is, you, you can't really otherwise describe it as anything but selfish and self-absorbed and self-serving as he looks out at people and sees them as political pawns for his own good, as he looks out and sees his own daughter-in-law as an object of desire, um, as he looks out and sees John the Baptist as expendable for his own purposes. And so when his friends, when he wants to save face in front of his friends, he has him put to death. Here we see what Jesus sees. 
Crowds of people flocking from everywhere come to see him. Have a look in verse 32. They went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognised them. So they recognised Jesus and the disciples, and they run on foot from all the towns to get there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. <clears throat> We've seen it before. Jesus is, is absolutely mobbed by people. And we see it again at the end of this passage. Again, people are begging to see him, reaching out to, to grab his cloak just to be touched and to be healed by him. And here we see them again, racing to see Jesus, running on foot. Presumably, it's not the shortest way to get there if Jesus and his disciples got in a boat to get there. But from every town, these people are longing and reaching out to see Jesus. And what we hear here is that Jesus sees them. He undertakes what really is a profound act of love and gives other people his attention. He's able to do what many of us can't, what I can't do a lot of the time, and that is to turn even for a second away from my own personal welfare and my thinking about that. And he looks out and he sees the people's lives in front of him. And what does he see? Well, they're not a means to an end. They're not a nuisance. He's not annoyed by them. He doesn't look at the strangers um, and, and see them as bad and wicked people. He's not afraid of them. He doesn't want to stay away from them. He sees them like sheep without a shepherd. And so he has compassion on them. I have precisely two days work experience as a shepherd in my life. When I was 17, I put on my best flannelette shirt, drove down to Cooma, south of Canberra, um, where my friends had a property who were ready to shear sheep. And so I jumped in there, you know, actually really enjoyed it for a couple of days. It's hard work though. Um, and I learned what I know about sheep from those two days and continue to believe that this is true. It might not be, but I think it is. Sheep are, are beautiful creatures, but they don't know what they're doing. Um, all, of the, all of the caricatures about sheep are true, I think. They, don't, they, they need protection and guidance. They don't know what they need. They don't know where to go. They follow each other into worse and worse situations. They're vulnerable to pigs, to foxes, to crows, to diseases and they get lost. I had to find one of the lost sheep, we couldn't find one, so I went down and I was very biblical, I picked up a sheep and put it on my shoulders and walked back and I felt very proud of myself at that moment. Um, I'm a complete pretender when it comes to being a shepherd. But what Jesus sees is true about, of, true about sheep, is true about the people that he sees and what he feels corresponds to exactly this picture. He's moved with compassion. He's not afraid of the crowds, He's not annoyed, he's not frustrated. He has compassion, and that compassion drives him to serve them. Not self-serving like Herod, and not like so many leaders that we experience today. I want us to notice three things about the actions that come out of what Jesus does when he sees the sheep. Uh, notice first that Jesus' serving um, of the sheep takes the form primarily of teaching. So you can see there, um, verse 34, um, he had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. Uh, there's a hunger in the crowds that is much deeper than just mere food. Uh, a hunger for justice and for help and for hope. It's a hunger for God and his kingdom, and so 
Jesus gives them what they hunger for. We see that hunger as they run to Jesus. They're not running because they thought that he was going to put on a picnic, even though they do get a picnic. He runs for that. They run because they have a deeper hunger and a deeper need that that Jesus will provide for them. That's the first thing. Notice, secondly, that the healing miracle is is kind of understated. As you read through this passage, and you know at the start of the, the passage, it says there that Jesus feeds the 5,000 to the point. Um, it's, a, it's really interesting as you read through the passage to realise this is actually a bit of an afterthought in what he's doing. Um, feeding only comes as an afterthought when the disciples speak up and say, hey, Jesus, maybe it's time for these guys to get some food. Um, it wasn't Jesus who thought that they needed to get food immediately. It wasn't even the crowd who spoke up and said, hey, guys, do we want to get some food? But this goes to say something important about Jesus' miracles, that they don't seem to be um, simply a demonstration of Jesus' raw power. As though Jesus can do something spectacular or entertaining that we think would be more impressive. And you can kind of imagine Jesus' marketing team maybe pushing him in that direction. Jesus, I know you've got a pretty good crowd in front of you anyway, but you you could really boost numbers if you used some fireballs, you know, and just flew into the air, did some somersaults, lasers coming out of your eyeballs or something like that. Um, that would really boost clicks, Jesus, if you did those things. Um, especially if some of those flame balls sort of hit some of the Romans and took them out, no one would be worried about that. But rather than highlighting the power of Jesus, his miracles are trying to show the purpose of Jesus in his kingdom. And probably the, the clearest understanding of this comes in, as Mark so careful in the, right, the way that he writes these, um, these narratives, these, these episodes, throws back, alludes to something of God's feeding miracle of the Israelites in the past, manna in the desert, which is so beautifully and properly summarised by Moses in Deuteronomy 8, where Moses says, remember how the Lord your God led you in the wilderness those 40 years? Of course, remember, the disciples here are sitting with 5,000 people in a wilderness area. Moses says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And why? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And there's a tiny hint of what Jesus is doing here, not just feeding them by his teaching, which of course he's already prioritised, but in a moment when he does take the bread, he says, it says, he gave thanks and broke the bread. The same language, and it's just hinted at here, the same language that Jesus will use later on in chapter 14 at the Last Supper where Jesus takes the breath and he, break, and he, and he uses the same words, he gives thanks and he breaks the bread, describing the kind of death that he would have. See, Jesus shies away from the gross acts of power to show that the way of shepherding is completely unlike that of Herod. His power is shown in his giving up of power. It's not his elevation, but his subjugation. Not his taking of life, but in his giving of his own life. Jesus feeds his sheep and he gives them, at this stage at least, the knowledge and the spoils of his kingdom. And the miracle, rather than being some kind of assertion of the kingdom, is, an exp- is, a, is a sign of the kingdom itself. 
In fact, one of the greatest miraculous components of it is that the crowds are satisfied when they, when Je- with what Jesus gave them. The crowds had come, clambered so desperately to be, be near him, and then at the end of the passage, what do we see? Jesus is able to dismiss the crowds and they go back to their homes, presumably full. Twelve baskets left over, plenty to eat. And like the famous Psalm 23, Jesus is their shepherd. The sheep want for nothing. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He satisfies their souls, not just their stomachs. There's a third thing to note from this as well. Note thirdly that Jesus' miracles um, are more of a lesson to be learned about his kingdom as his disciples get schooled in this last section. And you would have noticed this, that it wasn't the crowds who called out for food. It was probably these tired and hunger, it was probably the tiredness and hunger of the disciples who suggested they draw things to a close. And so we read in verse 35, by this time it was late in the day and his disciples came to him and, oh, Jesus, you know, this is, this is a remote place. It's already late. Why don't you send the people away so that they can get something to eat? And Jesus comes back and schools them. He says, actually, there's a lesson for you guys here. Do you see what I see? Do you have compassion in the way that I have compassion? You give them something to eat. That is, Ron's, well, that's going to cost too much money. We can't possibly afford to that. It's a lesson he's teaching his disciples that he, as he tells them to feed the crowd, to take what they can find. So he says to them, verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they, they came back with five and two fish, Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups. And they sat down in groups. And then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he gave it to the disciples to distribute. And he divided it. And then he had the disciples pick up the basketfuls at the end. It's a lesson that the disciples won't get at the end. We'll see that in the next section. In verse 53, we see that they don't understand the loaves and their hearts are hardened. But it's a lesson for us for the moment. And I'll quickly ask the question, do you see what Jesus sees when you look out of the crowds? I was was walking through Circular Quay before and I looked out and was trying to get somewhere quickly and I thought the crowds were annoying, they were getting in my way. But when you look out at the crowds, do you see what Jesus sees? Not people who are annoying, not people in your way, but like sheep without a shepherd, and sheep in need of the shepherd Jesus. Are your hearts filled with the compassion that he has? It's not really clear how the disciples have experienced the episodes in this section but it's probably fair to say that they've had a difficult journey. And so the second point, Jesus has compassion on the disciples. At the start of the passage, we see the the disciples actually buoyant. Um, You can see there at the start, um, they've come back from Jesus's mission for them. Last last week, we saw that Jesus sent them out in twos to do things. They've come back called with a new title. They're called apostles for the first time because they're people that have been sent. And they come back full of accomplishment. They've telling Jesus about all the things that they've done and taught with the authority that Jesus has given them. Then in the passage we see Jesus school them. He says, you give them something to eat. And he takes them the task about the way that they're doing things. By the end of the passage, we see the disciples are stuck. And I can't think of a more miserable situation. In a boat, in the middle of the sea, somewhere between three and six o'clock in the morning, 
rowing against the wind. Absolutely miserable. Absolutely stuck. Uh, the wind and the waves remind us of a similar account we read earlier in, in Mark 4 where Jesus calms a storm. And the, the wind and the waves, as Tom told us last time when we looked at that, representative of chaos and evil. And so we see something going on here that happened, but it's also symbolic of other things that happen. In this case, it's not just literal wind and waves that, uh, that the disciples are caught in, but the figurative evil and chaos of their own hearts. So we read in verse 52 that their hearts were hard because of the loaves. Seems like Jesus had an expectation that the disciples would understand something about the loaves, but they didn't get it because their hearts were hardened. It's pretty damning words to say that your hearts are hardened. It's the kind of language reserved for God's enemies, the people that oppose Jesus. What do we make of the fact that Jesus' disciples have hard hearts? Well, maybe a better question is, what does Jesus do when he sees that his disciples have hard hearts? Let's see what he does in verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. This is Jesus. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, or literally at the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke up to them and he said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed because they had not understand about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. Just as Jesus had compassion on the crowds, Jesus has compassion on his disciples. First, he sees them. He's watching. He's on the hill praying, but then at the fourth watch of the night, almost in a military fashion, almost like he's a shepherd, watching out and protecting his sheep at night, he sees them in trouble and he comes to help. He comes walking on the water, which shows his power over the elements and over evil. And though he frightens them, after the disciples make not the, the not illogical conclusion that he's a ghost because he's not actually falling into the water, and though he frightens them by who they think he is, he comforts them when he becomes recognisable. And he calms the wings and he speaks comfort to them, take courage, it is me, don't be afraid. And he climbs into the boat with them and he continues on the journey with them. Perhaps this resembles the situation for some of us here. Riddled with doubts and questions, plagued by failures and fears. Jesus is the king of compassion on the crowds, but also on his disciples. Note that Jesus doesn't go in and simply solve all their problems. He doesn't magically make their hearts soft by being in the boat. Nor does he wisp them away to get them into some actual rest at this point. In fact, he heads them straight back into a crowd of people to do it all again. But what he does do is he steps into the boat and knowing full well that his disciples' hearts are hard, 
He journeys with them and says to them, take courage, it's me. You don't need to be afraid. Hear this, won't you, if you're a Christian who's ever been tempted to think that God's given up on you. Maybe God used to love me, but he couldn't possibly want anything to do with me now. That's not the picture that we have here. Jesus has all the patience and he gets into the boat, even with hard-hearted disciples, and he continues to journey with them and he continues to to journey patiently and love you too. I think this passage also has a special word for disciples who experience deep afflictions. I don't know everyone's situations here, but I know, I know some of us have some pretty deep afflictions that you're working through. Um, I was reading a book by Simone Weil, who's such a deep and profound thinker, who talked about the loneliness of afflictions. She says it's impossible for people to understand people and their afflictions. For those who have been subject to an affliction, they're like a half-crushed worm on the ground. They have no words to express what's happening to them. Those that haven't been afflicted don't understand. Those who have been afflicted are in no position to help. Compassion for an afflicted person is impossible, she says. But when it is found, we have a more astonishing miracle than walking on water, healing the sick, or even raising the dead. What we see here is that God is not at a distance from his afflicted disciples. His miracle lies again not so much in his raw power, but in his kingdom purpose. See, when, as, we see the, as we see Jesus' action, there's an awkwardness you might have noticed as Jesus approaches his disciples as he is passing them by. It's almost like Christians trying to walk through a door. No, after you, no, after you. Sort of Jesus stops and he's about to pass them by, but then he gets into the boat. It's hard to understand exactly what this means unless... We go back again to some of the careful Old Testament allusions that God, that, that, that Mark uses in describing who Jesus is. You can look up Exodus 33 to see the way that God passes by Moses later. You can look up the way that God passes by Elijah in 1 Kings 19 another time. As Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, he's echoing the confounding glory and the glory that God reveals to his people as he, just, as he passes by Moses, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate. There's another striking allusion to the book of Job in chapter 9 where Job cries out in his search for God, deep in affliction and suffering, the quintessential sufferer in the Old Testament. And you can hear the verbal similarities in Job 9, and I encourage you to go and read it later, but he says... God, his wisdom is profound and his power is vast, but who has, who has resisted him and come out unscathed? God alone searches the heavens and treads on the sea, treads on the waves of the sea. God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When God passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Job, Job if, you've, if you've read the book, he cries out in his, in his afflictions and he longs for there to be a mediator, someone to bring him closer to God. I wonder if you are like Job, encumbered by the weight of your afflictions. Friend, Jesus sees you 
And just as he saw the crowd and just as he saw the disciples with compassion, he sees you. He understands your affliction. He's able to calm the storm. Though he might not calm all of our storms immediately, he may or may not take away your afflictions. But the king of compassion is present with you. And his words are for you too. Take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus, our good shepherd. We thank you for what he sees. We thank you for what he feels, his deep compassion. And we thank you for his acts as he brings his kingdom. Help us to trust in him. Help us to know your compassion for us today in Jesus. Amen.